So the conversation went something like this. Pastor Lucas, I'm in a very, very difficult predicament. We're in my office, I was providing pastoral counsel, and I said, well, what's the predicament? The individual said, well, I've had a friend since kindergarten. We were friends all through grade school and through high school. Even when we went to separate universities, we kept in touch uh, weekly, saw each other on holidays. I mean, this has been my best friend my whole life. The both of us uh, got married and had children and moved into neighborhoods close to one another and our relationship continued to develop over time. But her marriage kind of started to take a turn for the worse and she started abusing drugs and alcohol. And her marriage collapsed and came off the rails. And then recently, she started dating somebody else. In fact, uh, that someone else is female. And now she'd like to get married again. And she's invited me to her wedding and, and said to me, I don't want to get married without you there. You're my best friend. You're, you're the guest of honor. Please, please come to my wedding. Pastor Lucas, the predicament is this, and I already knew the predicament. You know, as a Christian, I, I wouldn't necessarily support a homosexual union. I believe that the Bible says one man plus one woman for life. That's the definition of marriage. But then on top of that, I, I don't know that she should be getting married at all or in any kind of serious relationship with her substance abuse issues. And then even that, I don't think she should be getting remarried because the circumstances surrounding her first marriage and the dissolution of that marriage, I mean, she maybe should try to reconcile with her first husband. I think he might even be interested in doing that. I don't know that I can accept or affirm her choices. And so I'm in this pickle now. I'm conflicted. I want to extend the love of Jesus to her, and I want to let her know that she's accepted unconditionally. She actually has even had spiritual questions, and, and she wants to get to know the tenets of Christianity and get to know Jesus a little bit better. But all the while, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, there are three people in a predicament here, aren't there? The first is our friend that was invited to the wedding. How can you hold your Christian principles and still embrace and accept those who, who may not embrace those same principles? Uh, number two, uh, this individual that we're talking about who is getting remarried now is wondering, even in her spiritual questioning, uh, am I accepted by God? She's in a predicament too. Does he love me? And then I'm in a predicament as well as a pastor who's trying to extend some counsel and say, attend or don't attend. And I believe that Luke chapter 5 offers a solution to our hypothetical situation. It offers a solution to all three predicaments with authority and clarity. But the solution it offers may surprise you at the very least. At the very most, it may rock you to your core. So buckle up. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I would invite you to open them to Luke chapter 5. If you don't have your Bible, the scripture is up here on the screen. You can look on as a, with a device if you, if you want to do that as well. 
But we'll be in Luke chapter 5. And remember, we're talking about the meals that Jesus had with people. We've done two so far, his uh, wedding feast at Cana. Then the feeding of 5,000 men, which we talked about was likely closer to 20,000 people. And he's about to have another meal here in Luke chapter 5. We'll pick it up in verse 27. Luke writes this. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me, verse 28. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is a great story, isn't it? It's a great story. Jesus is having a meal with some folks and he gets some blowback from the religious leaders because they don't think Jesus should be having a meal with these folks. It's not an atypical story in the Gospels. This happens on a fairly regular basis, but there's a lot more going on in this passage than what meets the eye. So what I'd like to do is go back and pick it apart verse by verse and then hopefully glean some principles from it that might help us in our day-to-day as well. Let's let's pick it apart uh, piece by piece, word by word. Go back to verse 27. Luke writes, after this. Well, the word this is a pronoun. It doesn't have any intrinsic meaning, right? It refers to something else. So what is the this that Luke is talking about? Well, it's the story that precedes this one. And four men have uh, rounded up their friend who is paralyzed and they've brought him to Jesus. They have a difficult time getting to Jesus because so many crowds are clamoring into this home that Jesus is in, and so they can't get through the crowds and pass through the crowds to bring their friend to Jesus. So they climb up on the roof, start ripping off roof tiles, and drop this man to the feet of Jesus. They leverage all of their resources. They risk their reputation just to get their friend to the feet of Jesus. And so Luke says, after this, After this, he went out of that house and saw a tax collector named Levi. Well, Luke has already told us a couple of things about this individual that Jesus is going to have an interaction with. First, this individual is Jewish. Levi is a very Jewish name. I had a friend that just passed away a few years ago. His name was Heinz Heischt. Can you guess his ethnic background? Yeah, he wasn't Guatemalan. He was very, very German. Same thing with Levi. He's very, very Jewish. The second thing that Luke tells us about this individual is that he is a tax collector. Now remember, the Roman Empire contracted out collection of of taxes to the highest bidder. And so if you bid to the Roman government, I will give you $100 a month for that tax contract. And then you charge $110 a month to those you're collecting taxes from. Everybody's okay with it. You make a 10% profit. 
That makes total sense. You would never go into a car dealership and say, I'm going to pay you invoice for this car. The salesman would say, walk away, please, because I need to make a profit. And you pay a little bit over an invoice. They make a profit. You get a great car. Everybody's happy. That was what happened or what was supposed to happen with tax collectors. But what tax collectors figured out was this. If I'm contracted by the Roman Empire to collect taxes, I can charge whatever I want. Why? Because if someone refuses to pay taxes, I have the horsepower and the strength of the Roman government behind me. So I pay $100 a month for my tax contract, and instead of collecting $110, I collect $200. And the minute that somebody says, I don't want to pay that much tax, like that's ridiculous, that's price gouging, I say, centurions, soldiers, uh, let's do a little bit of convincing, shall we? And remember, the Roman Empire oppressed Israel. So you're talking about a Jew that has been a traitor from their ethnic group and religious group, now contracted by the Roman Empire and price gouging his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. Joel Green, conservative commentator, writes this about tax collectors in first century Israel. Tax collectors as a group were despised as snoops, corrupt, the social equivalent of pimps and informants. This is not a good guy. And you know what's even more interesting than this? I find this fascinating that Luke has a couple of different words he could use in the Greek for tax collector. And the one that he chooses is telonis. It's a lower level tax collector. So not only is this individual, Levi, a Jewish tax collector, he's the lowest of the low on the totem pole of tax collectors. I mean, this is the social equivalent of pimps and informants. He's pond scum. He's the lowest of the low. And not only that, Luke tells us in verse 27 that he's sitting at his tax booth. So he didn't used to be a tax collector. He's not by vocation a tax collector. He's literally collecting taxes. Jesus walks over to him and says, follow me. Verse 28, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Quick comment here about what Luke is doing, because he does it a couple of times in this little pericope here. It's called literary compression. And I think sometimes what we imagine is that Jesus kind of walks in out of nowhere and he walks over to this man, Levi, and he says, hey, you, follow me. And Levi has no idea who this guy is or where he's even come from. The likelihood is Levi had a relationship with Jesus already. He almost certainly would have heard of healings and teachings that Jesus had done. Perhaps even Levi was part of this group of people that just saw Jesus heal a paralytic. And so when Jesus says, follow me, Levi knows his teaching. He knows his miracles. His reputation at the very least precedes him. And so Luke doesn't tell us all those details. He uses literary compression. He compresses the story. So Jesus says, follow me. Levi leaves everything and follows Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 29, it says that Levi made him a great feast in his house. Now, what we might imagine is that Levi had a little party and Jesus was there, perhaps. But there's more than that. 
There's more than that. Because what Levi is doing is he's taking two common practices of eating together and combining them. The first is table practices in the second temple era. That's Jewish practices. Jesus was Jewish. Levi was Jewish. They're two Jewish men eating together. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he's also combining it with this Roman practice called symposium. At symposium, there was a large banquet, and the large banquet was followed by a party where people would discuss, and there would be entertainment and those types of things. And in a symposium gathering in the first century Roman Empire, there was always a host. There was always an honored guest. There was always other guests that are invited and discourse that followed the meal. This particular gathering has all the markings of Roman symposium. Who's the host? Well, Levi is. Who's the honored guest? Jesus, because verse 29 tells us that Levi made him a great feast. Who does Levi invite as his guest? Tax collectors and others. And what do they talk about? Well, there's discourse that follows the meal that we just read about. This is symposium. But check this out. The symposium in the Roman Empire, when they had a meal together, the party that followed was not just a party. Because a party is something you throw for your two-year-old. The party was a party. You know what I mean? A party is like bring a change of socks and your passport because things might get wild. That was the party that followed the meal at Roman Symposium. How do I know that? Well, at a Roman symposium gathering, they had these things called craters, large ceramic jars for wine. And each individual was given at least three, usually more, large ceramic jars of wine to drink. This is a lot of wine. In fact, an individual named Eubulus in the 4th century BC talks about the practice of wine drinking at Roman Symposium, and he writes this. I think this is funny. For sensible men, I prepare only three craters. These are these large ceramic jars of wine. One for health, which they drink first, the second for love and pleasure, and the third for sleep. After the third one is drained, wise men go home. The fourth crater is not mine anymore. It belongs to bad behavior. The fifth is for shouting. The sixth is for rudeness and insults. The seventh is for fights. The eighth is for breaking the furniture. The ninth is for depression. And the tenth is for madness and unconsciousness. This is Roman Symposium. This is a party that Jesus attends. So what else now do we know about Levi? Well, we also know that he's wealthy, don't we? because he has a party in his home and hosts between 20 to 40 people, because that would have been normative for Roman Symposium. How many of you can host between 20 and 40 people in your home comfortably? I can't, unless people are standing up in the kitchen, but the passage tells us that they're reclining at table. This is a large, comfortable home. The passage also tells us that there is a great feast happening and Levi is funding this thing. He's underwriting this thing. He is a wealthy tax collector and he throws Roman symposium in his house where Jesus is the honored guest. Let's keep reading. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Just a real quick heads up that Luke identifies the others who have gathered as others. But when we hear the Pharisees, religious leaders talk, they identify the others 
as sinners. Listen for it when we get there. The second thing I want to point out here is this really fascinating to me. Do you see Jesus' network of relationships growing? He calls one individual from the tax booth to follow him. And the next thing you know, he's sitting with 40 of them, all of whom we'll find out in a minute, need Jesus like the sick need a physician. As I was studying for this series, I read everything I could get my hands on regarding food and eating. I read books called The Theology of Food and Rethinking Community and the meals that Jesus had with people. And I read commentaries about meals and I read everything. And I also read some secular literature about eating together. In fact, I read a book called Never Eat Alone. It's about leveraging meals in order to build your network of relationships. This is what Jesus is doing here. In fact, uh, in that book, a man named Robert Metcalf is quoted. He invented the Ethernet, so he's no dummy. And listen to what he says about building your network of relationships. He says, the value of a network grows proportional to the square of the number of its users. That makes sense to us. So in the case of the Internet, every new computer, every new server, and every new user added expands the possibilities for everyone else who's already there. The same principle holds true in growing your network of relationships. The bigger it gets, the more attractive it becomes, and the faster it grows. That's why I say that a network is like a muscle. The more you work it, the bigger it gets. Jesus is building his network muscles here. Levi is helping Jesus grow his network of relationships with those that need a physician. I think that's fascinating. It's a New York Times bestseller that just was released in the last 20 years, and the principle is 2,000 years old. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled. The religious leaders, the elite, those who thought they were righteous, grumbled against Jesus. And in the original language, that word grumbled in the Greek is called onomatopoeia, I love to say that word, onomatopoeia. It sounds like a special at a Spanish restaurant with shrimp, doesn't it? I believe I'll have the onomatopoeia. That's not what it is. Onomatopoeia is when a word sounds like what it is. So like machine noises, honk, beat, vroom, clang. They sound like what they are or sounds of impact like boom, crash, whack, thump, bang, things like that. In the original language, this word grumbling is gonguzo, and it sounds like what it is. It's the same word that's used for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament when they begin to grumble against Moses. They're grumbling, gonguzo, not against Jesus, but against his disciples, saying, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, Yes, the disciples were there, but Jesus was the guest of honor. They don't have guts, right? Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous. Now, this is very cool what Jesus does here. I have not come is in the aorist tense. It's a Greek kind of verb tense, and it's really the present perfect. So the word is probably perhaps better translated this way. I am 
come. Now in the English, it kind of reads awkward, doesn't it? It sounds awkward. But Jesus is saying, I am here. Not my past mission that brought me here, but my past mission that brought me here and my present reality and what I'm going to continue to do in the future, all of those things, I am come not to call the righteous. The implication is those who think they are righteous. (laughs) But I have come to call sinners to repentance. It's a very unique story, very cool story. So what does this all mean? Well, if you're jotting down notes, I would love you to just jot this down. It's real simple, it's not complicated. I didn't alliterate or rhyme or anything. Jesus came to accept sinners. Jesus came to accept sinners. And in this particular story, in part, it's about Jesus' message, I get that. But even more than that, it's about his method. It's not just about what he's saying, but what he's doing. Let's talk about that just a little bit. You may have heard of uh, Marshall McLuhan. He's famous for saying the medium is the message. He was a professor at the University of Toronto in the 20th century. He writes this, he says, societies have always been shaped more by the nature of the media by which men communicate than by the content of the communication. I wanna say that again, read that again, let it sink in, because I know it's a little difficult. Societies have always been shaped more by the nature of the media by which men communicate than by the content of the communication. What McLuhan is saying is your method is going to come through loud and clear and even trump your content if they're at odds with one another. You cannot simultaneously advise or counsel while your medium of communication or lifestyle contradicts your content or message because your lifestyle or your medium will trump, overshadow, quiet, silence your content. Your method will always come through more loudly and more clearly than your message. Jesus knows this. And so, yes, he's saying, I've come to accept sinners, but check out his method. He is sitting at table with sinners in Roman symposium, watching them do what sinners do at a Roman symposium. And it's not just that, remember, because he's marrying Roman symposium practices and Jewish table practices. And in the Mediterranean world, and specifically in the Jewish world at that time and place, shared meals meant shared lives. Sitting at table intrinsically meant acceptance, embrace, and alignment. I just want to read you a couple of very conservative Bible scholars, so you know I'm not just taking the way crazy liberal view or saying that Jesus affirmed all sin. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that he accepted sinners. Listen, Joel Green writes this. Shared meals symbolized shared lives. We've already said that. 
intimacy, kinship, unity throughout the Mediterranean world. So when Jesus sits down at table with sinners, everybody knows what that means. It symbolized intimacy, kinship, and unity. Daryl Bach writes this about the Pharisees and their problem with Jesus and why they take issue with this. He says, the problem in their view is not mere contact with sinners, but table fellowship. That meant something. Table fellowship seeks out and welcomes these people. In fact, check this out. This is crazy. The Greek word for feast is the root word in Greek for welcome, accept, and receive. They are quite literally synonymous. Feasting, welcoming, accepting, and receiving. Jesus is even willing to risk his reputation in order to communicate this message. Remember, because Jesus is accused, not just here, but throughout the Gospel of Luke, of eating and drinking with sinners. Daryl Bach writes this, he says, Jesus aggressively forms relationships that would help lay the basis of an acceptance from which the challenge about lifestyle could be made. The Pharisees question Jesus' integrity, but he's willing to put that at risk because he knows that his medium is going to communicate far louder than his message. Verlin Foster who runs a table fellowship in Seattle for the outcasts and homeless and addicted and poor in society, says this about Jesus' meals with sinners. He said, Jesus' strategy of rescuing the world didn't involve talking about spirituality. It involved having dinner with sinners, caring for people. The church is not meant to be a purity system or an information download. It is meant to be a rescue expression. Christ's rescuing of all creation back to the purpose for which it was created. Jesus very much believed that he wasn't handing over just the message, but also the way it would be done. Wow. Here's why that's important. Jesus is not just saying, I am come for sinners. He is in his very action offering unconditional acceptance to the moral caboose of society the lowest of the low, the outcasts, the morally reprehensible, and as followers of Jesus, we are called to follow in his footsteps. But unfortunately, we get this wrong sometimes, don't we? Because here's sometimes how we think, that repentance leads to acceptance from God. And then once you're accepted by God, then we share table together. We, we think that way. You repent, and that repentance leads to acceptance from God. And once you're accepted by God, then we share table together. See, Jesus didn't think that way, didn't preach that way, didn't act that way. It began with unconditional acceptance. And that unconditional acceptance manifested itself in a table together. And perhaps that would lead to repentance. Certainly was Jesus' ultimate goal, but it wasn't... Uh, a precondition for acceptance. The acceptance he extended was unconditional. And he's willing to put it all on the line to communicate that. So what's Jesus' message for the addicted, divorced woman who's marrying someone of the same gender? Here it is. You are loved accepted by God.
How about for the friend who was invited to that wedding? How about for the pastor who's trying to offer counsel or the fellow brother or sister in Christ who is sought out for counsel? How does Luke chapter 5 solve that predicament? Well, based on what we just talked about, you tell me. But it's not just about a wedding invite, is it? It's about our whole lives. It's about moment to moment living out the message of the kingdom, embracing those who have been ostracized and forgotten about, expanding the boundaries of the kingdom of God, not just preaching a message, but living out and demonstrating the good news about Jesus and all that we do. I've said it before, I'll say it again, you, you may be the only Jesus somebody sees today. Remind them that they're loved, accepted, appreciated, affirmed, valued, and cared for. So send a text, give a hug, make a call, drop a line, an email, maybe even extend an invite to your table with COVID restrictions in place, of course, in order to not just speak the message, but live the message, demonstrate the good news about Jesus because you may be the only Jesus that somebody sees today.